What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another week of A Little More Good. We're really excited for this week's episode. We can't wait to dive in. But first things first, it's good to be with you. I'm Dean. I'm Zach. Yo, A Little More Good coming at you. Um, So yeah, today we caught up with an incredible person that we've admired for a number of years. We first heard him on the Rich Roll podcast, which if you've been listening to A Little More Good for a while, you know that we're big fans of Rich Roll. And all of the people that he has on. And today's guest, Light Watkins, is someone that we both, I mean, lit up when we heard the the message that he was preaching and, and the vibe that he has. And we were like, man, that would be so cool to be able to have a conversation with him one day. And friends, that day has arrived. Um, we're really excited to share this conversation, not only because we got to sit down and hear from Light, but also because he has uh, just released a new book that you can get your hands on. And so we're very grateful to be able to be um, sharing that and sharing that with you. And so... Yeah, diving into spiritual minimalism with Light Walk and some of the things we talk about uh, and some of what Light talks about in his new book, Travel Light, which is his his fourth, uh, is how he, after downsizing and kind of giving away all of his possessions, living from a single carry-on bag, realizing after a year that he still had too much stuff and from there, downsized to a backpack. And it was during that time that Light started to develop this concept of spiritual minimalism, which we get into on the pod. It's kind of a new take on regular old minimalism. Uh, And just instead of getting rid of all of your belongings, you also try to cultivate peace inside. And so it's a really good conversation. We, We jam on all of these things. Light has some cool stories that he shares and honestly is just such an inspiring person. Um, and we were so grateful to be able to catch up with him. Yeah, the conversation goes all over the place um, from how to meditate like a minimalist, how to split test your heart voice, which is also known as the voice of intuition. Uh, we got really into the idea and the importance of following curiosity, which is a big pillar for us. Um, I personally feel like that's one of our our leading pillars these days. It's just be curious follow your curiosity, be compassionate and open to possibility. Don't judge others. And, uh, you know, I think if you're curious about other perspectives, um, and open to, uh, possibility, there's, uh, there's so much to explore. Even, uh, I know we talked about, uh, him last week on the intro. I've been really into Ibrahim Karim lately. And he was like, sharing how um, if we're not interested in things, we just posture that we don't like these things. And that can be food or sports or whatnot. You can just say, well, I don't like that. But if you take on the, the put on the hat of curiosity and try these things, um, it opens up a path of being interesting and interested in, in all things. And, uh, you know, there is no right or wrong when you are constantly in that posture of trying on new hats to see how they fit. Um, we get into the meditative power of flaneuring. Is that how you say it? Flaneuring. Flaneuring, which is the 18th century French term for aimless walking. Mm-hmm. Super fun. Um, there's so many amazing chapters in, in, in the book, The Minimalist Approach to Exercising and Why You Should Count 
reps using affirmations and not numbers. We didn't really dive into that, but it's such an interesting uh, part of the book. Uh, you know, imagine if you're like doing bench press instead of like counting to 10, you're like, I am strong. Yeah. I am, you know, beautiful. I am worthy. I'm abundant. You know, like just feel how strong you feel. Yeah. I know we hit the gym a little bit after just here at my place and, uh, you were like, how many sets are we doing on this one thing? I was like, I don't know. I'm just counting an affirmation today. <laughs> it was so good. But it's such a cool way to reframe it. It's just like, don't don't go by, yeah, oh, I'm going to do three of 10 or whatever. If, you know, but rather to, to break from that and just do what feels good. Yes. It was, it was nice. I remember even trying that. Uh, we made like a playlist of uh, kind of positive music of manifestation and affirmations like a, maybe a year ago around this time. And I remember going for a run and just like not feeling it that day just felt slow and heavy and sluggish and uh, like, you know, some days you just don't feel like being there. But then I flipped it and started just telling myself affirmations as I was running. And I like felt myself getting lighter and faster. And like, I started like laughing during the run that it's just like, we just need to reprogram those thoughts from like, you know, we are these things versus we have to be doing these things. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, um, spiritual minimalism to live a more fulfilled life. I love kind of the, the pillars of this book and the takeaways. I think they're deep and profound. And Mm -hmm. if we can get to those core ideas of life, you know, it's very uniting. Well, that's, what's great about it. Like everyone's spiritual minimalism journey is going to be different and some may want to live with less stuff. Others may be more inclined to let go of a toxic relationship while others may evolve past an outdated belief system. Um, so really like spiritual minimalism is the inside out solution for optimizing health, relationships, finances, and of course, and obviously spirituality. So this conversation is a great um kind of like wade into the water of all of the things that light talks about in his book, his newest book, travel light. So if you're vibing light and this conversation, be sure to pick up his book, travel light. Um, you're going to want to dive in and like have those opportunities to kind of reframe some of the most important and significant parts of your life. And, and he's a great guide to do some of those things. So very, very excited to share today's convo. Such a kind, generous person. And we're grateful uh, that we got to share a conversation with him. Uh, check out lightwalkins.com for all of his books, uh, his Instagrams, incredible, lots of inspiration, his own podcast, um, some of his speaking engagements. There's a whole bunch of, a whole toolkit of resources around Light's work on his website. Um, before we roll into this one, a few ways that you can support this podcast. One, share it with a friend. The best way to spread the word is word of mouth. So if this, uh, this episode on spiritual minimalism resonates with yourself, share it with someone near and dear to yourself. Two, leave a review wherever you tune into the podcast, Spotify, Apple, leave a review, like, follow, subscribe. It helps in a big way in allowing us to share a little more goodness to all of you. And number three, support our sponsors. Dean, tell us about our sponsors this week. Yeah, we're excited to be partnering with Caldera Lab. Gentlemen, we all know first impressions matter. And if you're not taking care of your skin, that's probably the first thing that someone might notice. And they can see, you know, skin that is not being looked after. And they might think you are older than you are or that you just don't really care about your appearance. 
So show them that you do and make a great first impression with Caldera Lab. Listen, you're going to brush your teeth today and incorporating skincare steps before it. You're guaranteed to not mess up your routine, leaving your breath fresh and your face refreshed. Caldera Lab is there as a high-performance men's skincare product, and the regimen kicks it off. It's their product starting lineup. Twice-a-day routine that transforms your skin. The regimen has three products, the Clean Slate, the Base Layer, and the Good. The Clean Slate starts and ends your day. This face wash leaves all skin types feeling refreshed. The base layer is your daily moisturizer. You got to get on it. It's my favorite. And the good is your go-to multifunctional serum at night that helps your skin look tighter and smoother, helping to reduce those visibilities of wrinkles and fine lines. Every drop of this serum is packed with 3.4 million antioxidant units that are there protecting your skin. One minute in the morning, one minute at night. That's all it takes to reduce your wrinkles, fine lines, signs of aging, and to, you know, do a little something special for yourself to make you look good, but also feel good. And you know what? For our listeners, we got a great exclusive offer. This is really the best offer available anywhere. Use more good at calderalab.com and you're going to get 20% off. That's legit. 20% off with the code more good at calderalab.com. Make unforgettable first impressions that lead to those charming words, you look younger or you're looking great. 20% off at calderalob.com with our code more good. There we go. What else, Dean? Who else is bringing the goodness to our ears this week? Yes, we're big fans of our next sponsor, AG1. They are so great. Uh, you know, we love it. We drink AG1 every day. It's really like a foundational piece of our nutrition and you can't be dialed in if your nutrition is out of whack. And so with 75 high quality vitamins, ingredients, probiotics, and whole food sourced ingredients, there isn't another daily routine that pays off as well as AG1, which is why I use it every day. It's simple, mix it up in some fresh water, Drink it. It's the first thing in my system every day. It feels good. It's supporting my gut health, supporting my overall health, helping with energy and just feeling good. You know, you you feel good when you do something good for yourself. And um, yeah, we're really, really thankful for AG1, knowing that they are just foundational nutrition nutrition that supports whole body health. Gotta love them. Love it. I'm drinking it literally right now as we record this. Mm -hmm. I've got my bottle did my wake and shake and brought it over here for, for a little pod action. And uh, I love that AG1 is so much more than greens. One daily serving delivers a comprehensive blend of core products working together to fill nutrient gaps and deliver the foundation for better health. I used to take many, many supplements, many pills, many powders, and now I'm just down to my AG1 as it's got vitamins and minerals, pre and probiotics, phytonutrient blend, digestive support, immunity support, metabolism, energy, and stress support, all in one convenient habit. Well, that's the thing. AG1 is not only high-quality, all-in-one solution. It's easy. It saves you time. You don't have to be confused about which supplement, when, and where, and which one goes with what. You just take it. And you know what? You can even save money. It costs less than 3 bucks a day, which is a small price to pay for all of the goodness you're getting. So if you, friends, are looking for a simpler, effective investment in your health, try AG1. And get five free AG1 travel packs and a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash more good. 
That's drinkag1.com slash more good. Check it out. There we go. On to this week's episode with Light Walkins. All right. Welcome back to another episode of A Little More Good. We are very, very excited to uh, be sharing a conversation across the Zoomverse with our guest today, uh, the one and only Light Watkins. He's a best-selling author, a meditation teacher, uh, founder of the Shine Movement, and an inspirational speaker, workshop leader, and someone that Zach and I have admired since we were just saying pre-pod. We first heard you on the Ritual podcast a number of years ago. Um, you were sharing about your your book, The Inner Gym, and some of these practices to have just, yeah, self-fulfilling life, pictures of yourself, uh, body positivity, movement, all of these things. And you've just continued to um, excite us, to spark our curiosity with not only your podcast, but through your Instagram, through the things that you put out and share, the way you really live your life. And um, we are just so, so excited to sit down and talk with you today, find out a bit about your origin story and share some exciting things. You got a new book coming out, so we're going to talk about that. But uh, Light, thank you. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you guys for having me. I'm, I'm really excited about this conversation and seeing where it goes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Us too. Um Recently, I guess in terms of a jump off point, we're always thinking, you know, it's nice to have like the origin story and figure out, okay, mm-hmm. where, where did this person come from? They're, they're up to all these cool things in the world. So what's the journey? How do you get there? And, you know, that's often, that's often for like a first conversation. We, we love to be able to establish that kind of narrative. And I mean, anyone who's familiar with you probably knows a bit of your backstory, but just recently uh, on your own show, on your own podcast, you had, you had a really cool like double episode feature your dad um Mm -hmm. and some some parts of it at that story were just incredible like he i'm someone who uh, has deeply admired uh dr martin luther king jr uh, both as a reverend and both as a civil rights advocate and you know to hear that he was the sunday school teacher for your dad was like just kind of wild and mind-blowing and similarly like rosa parks uh you know another incredible figure in the civil rights movement, like having some of these figures in and around your life. Um, just so cool. And then on your website, you have this great quote where, you know, as a kid, you say you've been a spiritual seeker, you know, for as long as you can remember, um, looking and contemplating the mysteries of life. And I just wonder like, if we start there, not just so much like what are the things and events that got you to where you are, but from a spiritual angle, from lessons of your father, lessons of the community that you grew up in and ways that you personally were just wired to see the world as spiritual. How, how would you say those things shaped you and molded you into the person you are today? Wow. That's such a, such a big question. Um, So I grew for the listener. I grew up in Montgomery, Alabama, which is the which was the staging point of the modern day civil rights movement. So I literally lived right. I lived on on Cleveland Avenue. Okay, Rosa Parks. The bus that she got arrested on was the Cleveland Avenue bus. Wow. So that's the bus that she. That was the road she was about to drive down to get back home from her job as a seamstress downtown, downtown Montgomery, Alabama. Which I don't know if it's fortunately or unfortunately hasn't changed all that much since 1955 when all that happened. If you went down there, you would probably, you know, you could you could imagine that it would still look the same as it looked back in 1955. But on her way, she would pass. Um, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, which is where Martin Luther King was uh, 
first, that was his first church as a preacher. And, and, and that's where he was, you know, they were holding mass meetings during the Mon Montgomery bus boycott days. And my, my dad and his family attended Dexter Avenue Baptist church. So, so those names of King and Parks and, you know, a lot of the other icons of the civil rights movement um, were, were regularly referred to and brought up in conversation growing up. And, um, but when I came up in the seventies and eighties, I would say we were in a sort of a post civil rights era. So that, you know, it wasn't really about, you know, overcoming Jim Crow or any of those kinds of things that my dad talked about in that episode. It was really more about, uh, succeeding and being, that was back when you were the first black to do this or the first black to do that. And that's what the storyline was. Oh, so-and-so is the first black NASA, NASA astronaut or the first black president or the first black, this, you know, president, uh, or, or uh, uh, first black quarterback or, you know, things like that. So that was what was exciting. And I grew up in a family that had very, I would, I would say materially very aspirational goals right? Be the owner of your business, um, make money. And, and at the same time, there was this sort of undercurrent of service and, you know, be a good person, stand up for injustice and, and that kind of thing. So I wouldn't say that we necessarily spent a lot of time in our house, my brothers and I, I have three brothers talking about these things with each other, but my dad would certainly come home from work and he would talk about, you know, the importance of entrepreneurship. He dissuaded all of us from getting into sports because he didn't think sports was uh, a path to becoming a business owner. He thought that instead of, instead of playing on the field, he would say, you, sh you should own the team. And that's mm -hmm. kind of where he wanted us to focus. And I didn't know a lot of that stuff that he talked about during our episode was happening in the background um, when he was in the city council in Montgomery and seeing all the things that he saw and dealing with all the problems he was dealing with. And, uh, and so at the same time, Montgomery, Alabama was a very small town, you know, it was probably 150, 160,000 people. And I just, as a young person, I just desired to get as far away from there as possible. Honestly, it was very, it was very, um, there wasn't a lot going on there. It was very slow. And we watched a lot of television. So I just imagined going to, to the biggest cities I could find the New York's, the Chicago's, the LA's, perhaps even London or something like that. And kind of blazing my own path. My brothers and I, we're all close in age. We're all within five years apart from the oldest to the youngest. So everyone was always at home. There was never any privacy. It's not that we lived in a shack or anything. We had a nice place and everything, but you know, just, there wasn't a whole lot of time for self-exploration. <laughs> and so I ended up going to Howard University in Washington, DC for college, which was great because DC was a much bigger city, a very diverse, uh, on, on so many levels and Howard was a beautiful, was a, you know, had his beautiful campus and 
Um, I got to be around people from all over the world and I studied advertising and I, I wanted to, I, I saw myself working in advertising in the creative department. And, this, and after college, I, uh, I did in fact get a job in the art department of a small boutique agency in Chicago. So now I'm checking both the boxes. I'm getting going from DC, which is a relatively big city, and then Chicago's major city. And that was exciting, uh, working on Michigan Avenue in Chicago, which is like the Champs-Élysées of Chicago. <laughs> and, uh, and that was a great job, except when I kind of looked around the agency at the people who'd been there the longest, I just didn't see myself being there and being in that position, you know, being the senior vice president or the creative director of this or that. They were all nice people and they had nice lives and 401ks and, and just, it just, it felt too, too stable for where I was at that time in my life. So I, I told myself, you know, let me, let me just move away from this for now the nine to five world, the conventional world, and let me go and just see what else is out there for a little while. And I can always come back to the advertising. And little did I know that would be my one and only, quotes, real job. You know, my one and only office, nine to five conventional job. And I got into uh, fashion, which was not easy to get into. It involved a lot of rejection in the beginning. Um, but eventually I just stuck with it and, and use that as a vehicle to travel the world, meet a bunch of people from a bunch of different environments and eventually landed in New York city. And then I, and then I worked in a restaurant as I continued with the fashion thing. And eventually I got discovered by, uh, I think it was a gap, put me on a bunch of billboards. And then that kind of launched my career. I was never like a supermodel, but I became a working model. And, and what that means is, you know, even if you work two or three times a month, you make enough money to pay all your bills. You have a lot of downtime. In the downtime, I started uh, studying yoga and meditation. And then eventually that became my catalyst for, for moving to um, Los Angeles. It's, it's really interesting. I'm curious, like, what did your, what were, what were kind of the reactions or thoughts of your, of your dad? You know, he, you, he had said get the, get the job, like follow this kind of path, become, become the business person. And, and you kind of did, but then you started to delineate from that, right? Like, uh, m modeling in the sense of like kind of non-conventional, non-traditional, you know, job. And like you are in, in some ways the product, right. That's being displayed or whatever. And I wonder like, what was his kind of take on that? Did, was there a conversation about, okay, this is like for a moment. And now like, what are you going to do when you kind of grow up sort of thing? Or was there more of like a, you know, support? How, how did that play out? Just knowing that he wanted you to pursue certain things to find success. Well, to his credit, um, he was very hands-off after high school, really. He didn't really, and you know, just being a teenager and a young adult, you, you're not really trying to be around your parents all that much. You're trying to get your independence, find your own footing. And so he didn't impose anything. He was just there. You know, if we needed a little money here and there, he would definitely help and provide. But then when I started making my own money, then I really didn't 
you know, I didn't have any, I didn't feel any need to bounce anything off of him. I don't, I don't know if I even really, um, I don't know if I, and this is going to sound bad, but I didn't, I don't mean it in that way, but I don't know if I really even felt like I needed his opinion about anything. Mm, yeah. But that's, that's um, kind of the important like self differentiation, right? You, you find your own way and, and you still obviously, you know, we care for and honor our parents, but we're not necessarily once we've arrived as like young adults and started making decisions and we're independent people, mm -hmm. we can, yeah, it, not in a, not in a complete disregard, but just like, oh, this is my path and I'm finding my way. And yeah. And I knew he didn't, he didn't have any experience with fashion industry. He'd never lived in these big cities. So, you know, it's not to say that he wouldn't have any opinion about it, but yeah, he was very, he was just very hands off. And, uh, and, and I, I honestly, Having grown up with so many people around, we're a family of six. I kind of learned early on to lie, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, my mom was a house a, a homemaker. She was always there and she would always, she was very like, you know, I felt a bit smothered in a, in a nice way, not in a bad way, but in a, you know, <laughs> I feel like I'm in a therapy session right now. <laughs> I, said, I, said, um, I have I have one of those kind of moms too. <laughs> and she would she would get reactive if she felt like I was doing something that she didn't approve of. So then I would just not tell her the full truth because I didn't want her to not be able to sleep. Because that's you know she would put she would say oh I couldn't sleep at night thinking about you doing X Y and Z and I never did anything bad. You know I was never doing drugs or alcohol or any of that kind of stuff when I was a kid, but you know, just being around older people that she didn't know, I guess what their intentions were, whatever she would be. She was very sensitive to those kinds of things. And um, so I would just not tell her the full truth. I would lie by omission a lot. And uh, so anyways, as I got older, I just didn't report what I was doing to my 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 parents. I just didn't. Uh, and you know, back then, this was before cell phones and text messaging, and you had to like find a rotary phone to call somebody and tell them what was going on. And if somebody else could have in the house could have been on the phone, so it, we weren't in close communication like we are these days, where you, they can go on social media and see everything you've done in the last week. You know, there was a lot more privacy, and I liked it. I liked the autonomy. I liked being able to blaze my own path and to create my own stories and to, and I've never been one to sort of publicize what I was up to or what I was thinking about um, until I started writing books much, much later, you know? Mm -hmm. So I was just having my own experiences and enjoy, and just enjoying all the different colors of life. Yeah. In some ways I'm, I miss those times of landlines. I've seen like people post TikToks of like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Gen Z folks, uh, know making jokes about what a landline is not knowing what it actually is but, uh, it's true like you know when you whether you're a, you know adult at this point or a teenager when you're out of the house you just kind of had your independence to be curious and explore yeah and, uh, you know you weren't connected to everybody and kind of this uh you know know what the joneses are doing all the time sort of way yeah i, yeah, I, I remember, I remember one time um when i was like about nine or ten years old i went out I went out of, it was my house was really, you know, everyone was in there watching TV and stuff. And I just needed some, some alone time. So I walked out and it had been, it had been drizzling that day. 
And I just start. I walked down the driveway and then I started walking down the street and I got to like the edge of the known universe of my neighborhood. And I kept walking past that edge and, um, and I just kept walking and walking and walking. And then like an hour and a half later, I found myself at the Montgomery mall, which was like the village square of the town, but you would definitely have to drive there. That wasn't a place you would walk to. It would take you, it was probably three or four miles away or five miles or something. Um, and I, I had taken a quarter to use the payphone when I got there and I called my mom. She goes, where are you? And I said, I'm at the Montgomery mall. She goes, oh my God, what are you doing there? I walked there. She said, don't go anywhere. I'm coming to get you right now. She came and picked me up and she was so upset um, that I, you know, walked there because she had no way of getting a, getting a hold of me. And, and if anything would ever happen to me during that experience, you know, who knows anything, anything could have happened. Anything yeah. could have happened. And then she, how horrible would she have felt? But, but yeah, those were the times, man. Yeah. Those were definitely the times. And, um, and at the same time, I, it was the first, I think that was like one of the first experiences where I just felt independent. And I was like, this is what I, this is, this lights me up, like mm. blazing my own path and not knowing, I didn't realize I was flaneuring back then, but that's essentially what I was doing. The sort of aimless walking that I'm, I'm writing about now, that's been happening my whole life, you know? And, uh, and I walk that distance every day now <laughs> without even thinking about it. So it's just funny to think about those breadcrumbs of, how we start out and where we end up. Yeah. Well, well let's dive into that. I, I saw just today on uh, online, it was one of those things like, remember when you were a childhood, it's like our, our parents had no idea how far we rode our bikes, like growing up in the eighties and nineties, they had no idea. And I was like, Oh man, that's so true. And then here's this story that you just shared of like kind of heading out down the driveway with no intention of going anywhere and yet ending up somewhere, you know, quite far away from your home and, and, it speaks to this idea of like, it's the journey, it's not the destination, which we hear often, but is maybe harder for us to live. But you, you touched on it, that term of flaneuring, it's a French term for kind of just like um, meandering or like a, a, a walk without a destination. You're not walking to the market or walking to the river, you're just walking. And how has this been a practice? Obviously, you did it from when you were a kid, and you still do it now. What has been some of the the, the learnings or experiences that make it worthy of obviously making it into your book, but making it worthy for the average person to start to say, I'm going to go and do some flaneuring around my neighborhood. Well, first of all, I just, I just uh, learned that term about a year and a half ago here in Mexico city. I was spending some time with a city planner, a friend who I met, she, she happens to be a city planner. And I was telling her how much I love walking. And she goes, have you ever heard of flaneuring? And I said, no, I haven't. She goes, oh, and she told me the whole backstory, how it was a, a term that was used uh, to describe French aristocrats and people of leisure, usually men who were out in, in Paris in the 18th century walking around. And they were people who had means, so they didn't necessarily have to go to work every day, um, but they would walk around for the for the pure pleasure of just being in an environment and observing what they whatever they could observe, so they wouldn't they wouldn't um, walk under the influence of any sort of alcohol. They wouldn't walk with other people because when you're walking with another person, there's a tendency to basically engage with each other but ignore everything that's happening around you. And um, and so it be, it's kind of like a meditation if you're just out by yourself. 
and you're just walking around. And yeah, I think maybe that's one of the reasons why I wanted to go to these big cities is because that's one of my favorite things to do without realizing that that's what I was doing, was just kind of walking around and getting lost. And it's funny because when I was a kid, I used to draw these maps. I was obsessed with city maps and I would just draw maps and I would draw streets. And, and this is again, back before smartphones. So in order to find out where you were going in a city, you would have to use an actual physical map and you'd have to look at all the little streets and try to work out the routine, the, 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 the route. And I would just draw, I would just make up cities and I would just make up streets. And I don't know, I was just always fascinated by big cities with a lot of labyrinth-like mazes, mazes and streets and roads. And so when I finally moved to the DCs and the Chicago's and the New York's and the Paris's and all these places, that was one of my favorite things to do was to just get lost. And I didn't realize it at the time, but that was probably a way of meditating, you know, because I didn't know anything about meditation. Nobody talks about meditation in Alabama or at Howard University in the 1990s or in the fashion industry. There was no, <laughs> it wasn't until I started taking yoga classes in the midnight in the um, mid to late 90s while living in New York that I was first introduced to practices like meditation. And, uh, and even then it was, it was a very, it was, it was the, the classical approach to meditation, sitting with your back straight in a sort of statuesque posture with your fingers together and uh, your shoulders rolled back and, you know, focusing on your third eye center and that kind of thing. There, were, there wasn't like the walking version of this yet. So it's been interesting to see how it all has evolved now to include a lot of things. But yeah, that's been something that a lot of people who have read the book, um, which hasn't come out yet, but it'll probably be out by the time this gets published, uh, have, they've gravitated towards is the idea of the walking, the aimless walking, and even the walking with the destination. Um, you know, cause you can kind of, you can manufacture this by just running your errands. When I was in Austin not long ago, for those of you who've been, never been to Austin, like one of the main central commercial districts is off of Congress Avenue and it's a long street and I would park like a mile away from where I was going. And then I'll just walk down that mile down Congress to whatever the destination was, because that gave me an opportunity to do a little bit of aimless walking, even though I had a destination in mind, but you still stop and meander and, you know, get turned around a little bit and go into here and, and, and it's, a, it's a great way to sort of practice following your inner guidance as well, um, because your inner guidance is always talking to you, but you don't really hear it if you're just doing the same old, same old. But when you go to a new environment and you start walking, you usually will hear little internal you know, cues. Hey, go to the left right here or go to the right or go pop into the store and see what that smell that beautiful smell is, or, you know, go, there's a cute girl going to the ice cream store, going to the ice cream store and get a sample of some, you know, butterscotch ice cream or something like that. Maybe strike up a conversation. So all that is your inner voice, you know, and, and it's a great opportunity to, to, to A, notice it and B, follow through on it. Yeah. I love all this. Just kind of reflecting on, on my own journey, listening to this, like I feel often, I'll put my AirPods in and go for a run and, and 
even if I'm going for an aimless walk or run, I'm, I'm distracted by other content. I'm listening to a podcast, I'm listening to music, and I'm not connected to, to myself. I'm almost like a passenger in, in participating in an activity. But when I think about where I've had those light bulb moments or those epiphanies or just like that connection to intuition that you speak of, it's been when I've been traveling, when I've been in new cities, or even when I've I've gone somewhere new in my own city where I live, like taking a left instead of a right and just like exploring what a different street, um, you know, looks like. I find like my senses are heightened, my awareness is is heightened, and all of a sudden I'm in a, a state of observation that might start externally but soon moves internally just by spending time with myself. So I think this is such a great reminder that like things don't have to be so programmed all the time. Like we don't need to be tuned into our music or our podcasts. Like we can just go and and meander and go for a walk and follow that intuition. Um, I just kind of got such a great visual of like, you know, whether going into the ice cream shop or the yoga shop, like some of my greatest discoveries when I was traveling was just just having an open mind, getting lost and being like, oh, what's in this shop? Like, let's go find out. And then that would lead to a whole new chapter that can, you know, really be life changing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like this segue is really nicely to a- another part of your book is um the split test your heart voice, like uh, knowing the the voice of intuition. So if we're going on these these walks, these meanders, and we're connecting to our intuition, um, when we have our podcasts or our distractions, often we don't hear that voice of intuition. So can you kind of like dive into the the split test your heart voice and kind of ways to to hear that, understand it, trust it, and kind of tap into it? Yeah, I do want to say, though, that for someone who's never gone out walking, I think that um, starting with a podcast or an audio book or something is actually it's a good way to kind of a hybrid way to get into the activity. And then after a while, you know, you evolve towards let me just take some silent walks as well every now and again and see what you can discover from that. So, yeah, when we talk about split testing the heart voice. So in the book, Travel Light, it's the subtitle is, is Spiritual Minimalism to Live a More Fulfilled Life. So the goal here is to live a more fulfilled life. The tool is to use the principles of spiritual minimalism. And one of those tools, principle number one, is cultivate your heart voice, which I recommend a minimalist approach to meditation. And this will be a seated eyes closed practice. So not necessarily a walking meditation, although there are some meditative benefits to uh, doing some aimless walking, right? But if you wanna get the biggest bang for your buck, you wanna get the most out of walking, then I recommend starting your day with about 10 minutes of just sitting with your eyes closed. And I, I. walk people through a very simple technique that can help them enjoy uh, a practice of daily meditation. And so that gets you not only sort of, it's like a reset for your nervous system, but it's also a way to sort of tune in. Think about like musicians. You would never see a professional musician going on stage without first taking a few minutes to tune their instrument, because that will make a major difference and how the instrument sounds and how they perform. 
So meditation, we want to look at it kind of like that. You're the instrument, your mind, your body, the way you communicate, the way you drive, the way you interact with your family, your kids, your job, yourself. All of that is going to be affected by whether or not you take the time to tune in to your instrument. So that's what it's doing. And, and in that sense, the instrument is you and your internal guidance. So when you get aligned with your internal guidance, that means the choices that you make on a daily basis, if they are in alignment with your inner guidance, then the outcome of those choices are usually going to also feel aligned to some extent. If your choices are out of alignment with your inner guidance, on the surface, it could look like you know you won the lottery, but internally, you're going to feel tension, you're going to feel friction, you may feel some anxiety, you may even feel depression, right? So, um, so taking that few minutes in the morning to kind of get in a get in tune with your inner guidance is the first principle of the tool of spiritual minimalism in order to live a fulfilled life, live a life of contentedness. In other words, to create life experiences that feel supportive as opposed to maybe destructive, right? That's what we mean by fulfilled life. And so um, the second principle is to make your most important decisions uh, with your heart and not with your head. And this is something you need to work up towards. And so when we talk about split testing, this is, this is where split testing comes in handy because your voice of intuition or your heart voice, that's not the only voice in there, in your consciousness. There's, there's probably like hundreds, maybe even thousands of voices in there. And those voices can include the voice of your parents or your caregivers telling you what's good and what's bad and what to do and what not to do. Um, those voices could include the culture that you grew up in. They can include the culture you live in now. They can include any fears you may have developed over the years. And by the way, all of your fears are self-generated except for two, falling and loud sounds. Those are the only two fears we're born with. Everything else is manufactured. So your fear of snakes, your fear of um, clowns, <laughs> your fear of dying in an airplane, that's all manufactured based on media that you've been exposed to or stories you've heard or, or um, cautionary tales, right? Uh, but those are not fears that you're born with. So... So those are in your consciousness as well. And, you know, stuff that you've seen in movies. So that's what populates these other hundreds or thousands of voices. And that's one of the reasons why it can be so hard to hear your heart voice, your still small voice. And when you become intentional about trying to hear it so that you can make your choices from your heart and not your head, it can be a little bit um, confusing or it can be a bit overwhelming 
because there's so many other voices in there. And you start to notice it when you sit for your meditation in the morning. That's when you'll get hit with all these voices. You can be like, holy shit, there's so many voices. I have monkey mind, da, 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 right? Perfectly common, perfectly normal. That will start to, um, that will start to dissipate over time. It's not gonna happen in the first week or first month, maybe not even in the first year, but with consistency, that will start to settle. Your mind will start to settle in the same way that if you have a muddy pond or river that's very turbulent, if it's still, all that mud and sediment goes to the bottom and then there's clarity at the top. So, so with the meditation, you just you don't want to try to do too much. That's why I advocate for the minimalist approach to meditation. But same with split testing. You don't want to try to do too much. You just You just want to kind of lock in on what you think could be the still small voice, the voice of your heart. And usually this is a voice that is guiding you out of your comfort zone. So this is a big misconception. People think oh, I'm following my heart. My heart's gonna put me in a situation that makes me comfortable. No, 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 the heart, <laughs> the ego is what's trying to keep you comfortable. The ego wants you to do what's predictable. It wants you to do what you feel is has a sense of certainty. So for instance, if you're out for a walk and you always walk on the same path because you become more and more familiar with it, your ego is going to say, keep walking this same path. It's safe. It's familiar. We know where it's going. It's certain. The heart voice may say, go on the, on the, you know, the, to take a right off of this beaten path into the unbeaten path. And so that's scary. That's scary because you've never taken a right before. And now we don't know where this other path leads to. We don't know if it's going to make us late. We don't know who we're going to encounter. And I'm not saying, look, if you're in a dangerous area where a lot of people are, there's a lot of violence and gang activity and stuff like that, take the beaten path, okay? But if you're in a different type of area and the only inherently dangerous about it and your heart or your still small voice is kind of nudging you to go to the right, to explore to the right, then that's your opportunity. If you think that that is your heart voice because it is moving you away from certainty, then follow it, follow it. And maybe it is, maybe it's not. I don't know. We don't know yet. And that's why we call it split testing. So split testing is a practice that is conducted typically by internet marketers who are trying to optimize for the best uh, Google ad or Facebook ad. And so they, they'll, they'll test two different versions of the same ad. One will have a yellow color and the other one will have a blue color and they'll see which one gets the most clicks. And if the yellow color gets the most clicks, they'll make all the ads yellow and they'll change the picture. They'll have a picture of a cat and a picture of a dog. And if the yellow ad with the picture of the cat gets the most clicks, then they'll put cats on all of them. Then they'll change the headline <laughs> and they'll keep optimizing it and trying to see which one gets the most clicks. And eventually they get the most optimized, most highly clicked ad that will bring in the most profit. And so that's what we want to do with the heart voice. We want to keep trying different voices. Is this the heart voice or is that the heart voice? And eventually you start to recognize the quality of your own heart voice, which is the process of you becoming conversational in the language of your heart. And then you won't have to 
really think about it and weigh the pros and the cons and all, it'll just become a natural extension of you just moving around. You'll hear that voice and you'll become instantly familiar with it and you'll be able to follow it without um, debating with it too much. And, and, and the volume gets turned up the more you follow it. So it's, it starts off as a still small voice, easily drowned out by the other voices, but eventually it could become a loud, annoying voice. And that's where you actually want it to be. You want your heart voice to be shouting at you and be annoying you, kind of like that roommate who you used to have in college. And when you were late with the your half of the bills, they didn't let you do anything else until you paid the your half of the bills. And you want your heart voice to nag you like that, because otherwise going out of your comfort zone so many times is still going to be a big hassle and you're not going to want to do it. So you need that loud, nagging voice in the back of your awareness saying, do the right thing, go the extra mile, go above and beyond, apologize, forgive right now, don't hold this grudge. You want that shouting at you so you can, you know, go to the person, I'm so sorry, I hurt your feelings, I didn't mean to, and, you know, tell, tell, speak your truth, don't hold back. You know, I, I was just feeling insecure, and you, you need that in order to really step into your own authenticity and vulnerability. And that's where you become the best version of you. Mm, that's so good. I, I just, I love everything you've been saying. And, and as you were talking, you know, this through and using the, using the analogy of like the, the digital, like split testing and finding the best ad, I just kind of was like chuckling to myself thinking like, here's a guy who's sharing these, you know, profound truths about like following your heart and, and recognizing the difference between what's pushing you to the edge of or outside of your comfort zone versus staying safe and that one's heart and one's ego. And, and, you know, you could have very easily pursued the path of advertising and fashion, which in many ways are some of the loudest voices telling the ego what it wants to hear, right? Buy this new shirt and you'll feel better about yourself. Buy, you know, check out these latest trending jeans. They'll make you feel like a better version of yourself. And, you know, advertising, we're surrounded by it for better or for worse. And it often is playing to the ego and it's getting in the way of us hearing the heart voice rather than sitting down and doing that work and cultivating, like, as you said, your inner guidance, your inner guide and, and really knowing yourself, we just say, ah, you know what, these new Nikes are going to make me feel like a better version than the meditated version of myself. And I just love the, that you, you know, you were kind of on this precipice of a journey where you could have just pursued these things in, in advertising in you know, modeling and following that and being part of that. And, and here you are almost at the opposite, the antithesis of it. And, and I think that's so beautiful. And it kind of speaks to something I've heard you talk about before, where it's like, um, you get to you get to choose how you show up in the world, right? And you know, sometimes people say, choose your heart. Do something hard now or do something hard later. And usually hard later is worse, right? I'm gonna put off going to the gym because I, I don't feel like it. But then you become, you know, an unhealthy version of yourself. And that's really hard to deal with mm -hmm. later. And I, I just love how, you know, you had that kind of moment in your life where you I think you'd said you started pursuing in the downtime of modeling yoga and some of these practices, meditation and how that's brought you. To where you are now that's such a cool i think service that you're giving back to the world thank you uh, a couple things about that um just to be perfectly transparent <laughs> the reason i got so it's funny because I, I look back now i was flourishing i was following my heart 
I, like when I left that advertising agency, it didn't feel aligned. I didn't have that language back then, but that's really why it just didn't feel aligned. It was a great job on the surface. It was a dream job. It was a job I dreamt of. But when I actually got there and started working there, I just didn't feel like this is for me for this season of my life. So that's one of the reasons why I left. And then when I was in living in New York as a model, um, well, part of the job of modeling is you got to work out. You got to go to the gym. You got to train. So I'm at the I'm at the first Equinox gym in the world on 76th Street in Amsterdam in Manhattan. And I was upstairs on the shoulder press machine and it's facing the group exercise room and it's around 6.45 at night. And I see all these really beautiful women congregating at the door of the group exercise room. They're barefoot and they have these rolled up little rubber mats. I'm like, what is going on over there? Like, there's no guys, there's all these beautiful women. They all look healthy and they start filing into the room. And my hormones told me like, you need to go into uh, this room and see what's going on in there. So that's how I ended up in my first yoga class, right? It's not some noble reason why I'd started taking yoga. I took it because I was single and there were some hot girls going into this room. And next thing I know, I'm in downward facing dog and going through this experience, which I actually did not love the first time I did it um, because I was, I had never stretched in my entire life. I'd only, I'd only lifted weights as an adult. And I was the only guy in the class and the teacher decided to make an example of me, I guess, because maybe I was the only guy in the class. I don't know. But so I got all this attention, which I didn't want because I wasn't that flexible. And I was just thinking how much I, I hated that part. But then I'd look around and see all these girls with their butts in the air. I'm like, oh, my God, but this is amazing. I'm the only guy here. It's like it's like <laughs> it's like in one hand, I'm the only guy here being embarrassed. But the other hand, I'm the only guy here. So I started going back and eventually after about four or five classes, I started going for the yoga. I started going for the yoga. And that's really what set everything else into motion was, was that, but you know, I wasn't, again, I wasn't consciously following the voice of my heart. Um, but that's what I was doing unconsciously. And, and, and it's funny because when I look back at my life before I had language for all this, the best experiences that I had that I've written about now, in all of my books were the experiences that started with something told me to dot, dot, dot. And I ended up in Paris or I ended up in this yoga class or I ended up in India or I ended up, you know, somewhere adventurous, amazing. And I would argue the same is true for all of us who are listening to this that when you had those, when you took your last trip, maybe to a foreign country and, you know, something happened with the itinerary and you guys kind of like made up your own plan and something told you to go check out this thing over here. And those were the best parts of the whole trip. And I would say the same is true for life. That's the best part of life is when we deviate from our normal, regular, everyday mundane plans. And if you can make a lifestyle out of that, then you find that life actually slows down. A lot of people complain that life gets fast, but life can slow down if you are making a habit of breaking your routine from, from time to time. And then the other thing I want to say is that 
a part of this spiritual minimalism approach is yes, things are hard. Going to the gym is hard. Eating healthy is hard. Meditating every day is hard. We get it. It's all hard and everyone's busy, but there are minimalist approaches to everything as well. So what I started doing when it came to the gym, because I have a hard time going to the gym every day too, you know, when I'm going there for an hour and a half to work out. So I said, you know what, I'm just going to do one exercise a day. That's all I'm going to do. One exercise a day. So I'm going to do bench press. Yesterday I did bench press. Today I'm going to do a set of deadlifts in the gym. It takes me 15, 20 minutes to do five sets of five deadlifts. And that's it. Even if I want to do more, I just do my five sets of five. And what ends up happening is it leaves me wanting more. So I, I actually leave the gym every day wishing <laughs> I could have done another exercise. And so that's another thing that I advocate is to put yourself in a position where you're left wanting more with your meditation. So maybe you only do it for five minutes and you do it in a way that, again, you, where you're not doing too much because when it's when you do too much that usually you get worn out with anything. So thinking of walking, I need to walk 10,000 steps. No, you don't. Just, you know, walk for 10 minutes. Just walk around your block one time, 10 minutes. Even if you want to go further, go back in your house. And then the next day, walk for 11 minutes. And the next day for 12 minutes. And then very gradually, you'll find yourself establishing these habits that you've always kind of envisioned for yourself. But, you know, you can avoid the whole pendulum effect of doing too much and then not doing anything at all. That, that's such sage advice because I find like I can get almost addicted to the um, not necessarily the outcome, but like if I'm going for a run, like I have to get to like the even number. If I'm at like nine miles, I have to get to 10 miles, you know, like I but it's like the beauty is stopping at nine, leaving leaving a little bit more to have mm. for later. Um, so I, I'm, I'm taking this uh, to heart because I need to hear these things like if I'm doing the bench press, you know, if I only get to to six and I planned that I need to needed to get to eight, like I'm like dissatisfied. But I think like that idea of minimalism, leaving more for yourself to come back to is, uh, is something we can all tune into. Um, I wanted to circle back to my favorite of your principles. Um, cause I think this is, you know, what maybe led you to that, that yoga class, you know, it might've been a group of beautiful women, but uh, principle number five, following your curiosity. Like this is, for me, this is like the number one pillar of my own interest, my own currency, my own energy. And it takes me to the best versions of myself, whether that invitation is, is a group of women or, you know, something that uh, is new to me. Um, I love the quote you have here of, of um, and I think this is really important for, for everybody, uh, where you say, don't worry about finding your purpose, just follow your curiosity and your purpose will find you. Cause I, like I work with a lot of, you know, pe young people that are trying to figure out what to do with their life and they just kind of get stuck on purpose and they don't know, like they're, they're Googling things and they're seeing what their friends are doing and they're going on Instagram and they're just like, I need to find my purpose. I need to find my purpose. But if you can reposition that to like, what are you curious about? it starts to become so much more possible, you know? So can we kind of dive into following curiosity, whether that's like an invitation to a yoga class or, you know, going, going left when we should have gone right. Um, I think I follow my curiosity too much sometimes, 
and like it becomes it can become a distraction but uh it is my favorite of my pillars to follow so principle number five let's get into it yeah um it, there's definitely some overlap between what we talked about with with flaneuring and uh following your curiosity um i think one of the big challenges or opportunities that that we have is to not judge our curiosity more people would follow their curiosity if they weren't busy judging it based on societal standards you know like for instance society tells you know grown men not to play video games you're wasting your time playing video games you are a loser if you're playing video games right but some people are drawn to video games for whatever reason. Some people are drawn to sports. Some people are drawn to drawing, to art. And, and it's not directly related to whatever your day job happens to be. So it looks kind of like you're procrastinating or you're killing time or you're, you're not on your purpose because you're spending your time doing these other things. And I would argue that if you feel naturally uh, curious about level whatever of this video game that you want to you want to reach that there's something that you're learning in that process that's going to come into play later on when your purpose starts to come more into vision for yourself because it always starts off as like you know a 5000 piece puzzle when you're say 20 and but you don't know what the puzzle is supposed to create you know it's not like when you get the box and you see what the th the end result is you don't see the end result you just see these pieces and they're all on the table and you just kind of have to figure out uh, and then eventually you start oh this is a horse or this is a you know this is this is a city land a cityscape and so as you're starting to get more life experience and you start to see that oh the way that this thing works video games work is kind of the same way that this other thing works and there's like a you have an epiphany which creates a connection now again you said principle five right so there's four other principles that precede this one meditation is one so it's hard to follow your purpose or it's hard to follow your curiosity with any sort of integrity if you're not able to hear and tune into uh, your internal guidance and then if you're not used to making decisions based on your heart, not your head, and then if you're not treating every moment as though it's special, which is um, number three, and if you're not giving what you want to receive, which is number four. So by the time we get to five, you've already sort of cultivated this internal state of, okay, I'm living mostly by my curiosity, but that doesn't mean you're avoiding your responsibility either. Because that would indicate that you're curious about what it's like to live on the street, which, you know, if that's not what you're genuinely curious about, then you have to pay your bills, you have to get a job, you have to, you know, be a responsible citizen of the world. And in that way, you don't have to have that experience um, intentionally. It, it, sure, things can happen and, you know, and, you know, you can fall on hard times and whatnot, but um, but you have choices and those choices that you're making today are going to play out tomorrow. And so, yeah, you, I, I, want, I encourage everybody to follow the curiosity within the confines of the sort of overarching curiosity of what kind of life you ultimately want to create. Do you want to have enough free time on your hands to explore the things that you are 
um, that light you up inside. And so if you keep going down the path with the video game, just as an example, eventually you may work out that, oh, you know, there's a way, there's a way to help children in hospitals connect with each other around the world through this video game platform that I had a dream about because I was so familiar with the inner workings of, of video games. And, and maybe that becomes your purpose, right? Taking that to um, another level and helping people. Because that's the thing with purpose. It, it usually involves some degree of service. And, um, and that's where we're all heading is, and that's what, you know, what people at the end of the day, literally at the last, the end of your life, when people are getting up to the podium and delivering the eulogy and giving memories of their interactions with you, that's where they're going to be talking about is how you served, you know, the ways that they witness you serve, how you serve them, how you help them, the things that you did to help other people. Like that's, that's really the most important stuff. And, uh, and that's something that we're all naturally kind of moving towards and we may not realize we're doing it. A lot of those reports are going to be things that you don't even remember that you did with other people. But, and that's where you want it to be. You want it to be just you. That's just who you are. But in order to get to that place of authenticity, we have to kind of get out of our head again and, and, and just want to start to live more from our heart. And the heart will give you everything you need in order to to serve in those little micro ways. You know, your heart will tell you, go help the person across the street. Your heart will tell you, you know, I know you were running short on time, but you have enough time to, you know, go and get this person some money who's begging on the corner. And these kinds of little things that will ultimately add up and cascade into big things later on in life. Yeah, I'm a big fan of small things creating big changes and whether that's externally or internally, like building more confidence or small changes to help community can can create bigger change. Um, one other thing I like about curiosity is it often for myself represents a, a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. Like if I'm not curious about something, I'm pretty stagnant with how I think. And I think like, like that can create, you know, we're we're coming out of a pandemic where we saw so much division and people were all holding up flags of what they were right about. But if we were just curious about what the people were thinking or exploring, you know, on the other, other side of that uh, equation, I think there would have been a lot more compassion and, and union over, you know, just being like set in how we perceive the world, you know? So I, I try to take curiosity to, um, I like I like the flow of the principles because I feel like they just work so well with each other, finding comfort and discomfort. Like for me, that could be like trying to, to, to be wrong in situations, you know, like get to a point where I'm, I'm proven wrong about something or if I'm trying something new and I'm feeling nervous, like I'm uncomfortable, but it's going to take me to another level of my own evolution. So uh, maybe we can explore finding comfort and discomfort. Like I think that's if we can find comfort and discomfort, so much possibility opens up, so many doors open up and that excites me. So let's, let's, um, let's see where we meander with principle six, where that, uh, where that takes us. 
Okay, so yeah, it's an extension of following your curiosity because a lot of times, you know, the whole your whole spiritual path, this is what I believe. I don't know this to be a fact, but this is what I believe. This is what resonates with me. Your whole spiritual path is encoded within your spiritual DNA. So in other words, you come into this world with natural curiosities that develop over time. But one of the things that I've learned, and you've probably seen this in your podcast interviews as well, is that when I regress a guest back to their earliest days and I reconnect the dots, almost without exception, there are breadcrumbs to whatever they're excited about now, whatever their purpose, whatever their service opportunity is now. For instance, I have this question that I, I ask most times, not every time, but I always ask, what was your favorite toy or activity as a child? And I had this guest once who he transformed his body from being 300 pounds to, I think it's like 200 pounds. He like lost a ton of weight. He's now a fitness influencer. He's got a whole YouTube channel with almost a million subscribers. And he teaches other people that you don't have to be in the body that you don't like. You can transform to whatever body you want. Here's how you do it. And so I asked him, I said, what was your favorite toy as a child? He says, Transformers. <laughs> and he didn't even really see the connection, right? <laughs> and I don't usually make the connection until the end of the interview. And sometimes I have to really like just drop in and let it come to me. But that one was pretty obvious. But, you know, it's it's that it happens over and over and over, like little things like that. He loved Transformers and he also was around his grandfather and his grandfather used to like recording things on his camcorder. And then he started recording everything. He just would just set up his camcorder. Like he, one time he got arrested for something and he set up his camcorder after getting out of court, and just had a confessional with himself. And, and so all of these little recordings became that transformational video that he had because he went from being overweight to being in shape. And he had the whole thing documented without even realizing that that's what he was doing, that he was going to use this footage one day to inspire people. So all we have to do really is just be natural. But in being natural, in order to really get into our um, path, it's going to require some degree of getting comfortable with discomfort because you can't be in your path and be comfortable at the same time. It's going to stretch you. And I've written before, you know, everybody who is living their purpose or their path has imposter syndrome. And if you don't have imposter syndrome, you need to go further because you need to feel imposter syndrome to know, okay, I'm definitely on my path now. That's, that's the, the litmus test of whether or not you are going far enough is that you now have imposter syndrome. You now think in the back of your mind, uh, I don't think I'm qualified to do this, this thing that I'm doing. That's how you know you're doing the thing that you are supposed to be doing. So, so you know, this is very simple because we all know what that feels like. But we spend so much time and energy trying to avoid it and trying to play safe, thinking that, you know, we're preserving something that is going to be valuable one day. But actually, in the spiritual point of view, playing it safe is your riskiest move. And taking the leap of faith is actually the safest direction you can go in. So, um, so yeah, that's what I'm encouraging people to do with find comfort and discomfort is, is to take that, that leap of faith. And, and the, the story that I opened that chapter up with in the book was about me becoming a yoga teacher. So I went from 
bending forward and being about 10 inches from the ground, my fingers 10, 10 inches from my toes, very stiff, hamstrings like bridge cables. And um, five or six years later, I'm in Los Angeles and I decided I'm going to take this yoga teacher training, even though I still was, you know, my, my flexibility had improved maybe in half. So now it was only five inches from being able to touch my toes. But still, how am I going to be a yoga teacher and I can't even touch my own toe. That's like that's like being a dentist with missing two front teeth, and you're sitting there trying, afraid to smile. <laughs> so you know the audacity of someone to think that they can teach other people and they can they can barely touch their own toes. That was a very uncomfortable situation for me, that I had to kind of make peace with and take the leap of faith anyway. And then it turned out. That was my unique advantage because guess what? Most people who come to yoga classes can't touch their own toes. That's literally 90% of the people. And because I came from that group of people, I knew how to relate to them a lot better than those yoga teachers who could kiss their own ass, right? People hated those yoga teachers. So I became a very popular teacher very quickly because I could articulate what the experience was like for those of us who aren't able to do all the fancy things that we may imagine yoga is, is about, but actually it's not about that at all. Mm. Yeah, that's so good. I, I love how all, all of the principles that you have, like you've obviously arranged them in a very intentional order, but as we have in this conversation, like you can kind of move through them and see the through lines and the connection points from, you know, starting with yourself and that first principle to finding your, you know, finding your, what it is in, in your heart decisions. And, you know, the one that really stands out for me amongst all of these is that idea of there's no throwaway moments. And someone that I've really admired over the years, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He comes out of the Christian tradition. His name's Rob Bell. He's like a writer and speaker. And um, I remember I remember seeing him give a talk called Everything is Spiritual. And I just, mm. it just so deeply resonated with me. And Rob, for me, has been someone that, it, similar ways for what you have done for me, has just given me language for some of the things that I think that my inner guide has always known or has always said. And then you hear people articulate it and you're like, yes. That is it. And and when I was looking through these principles and reading on the no throwaway moments, I was like, this is the everything is spiritual or, you know, the Buddhist teaching, like everyone is your teacher and to, you know, pay attention to the person in front of you at the grocery store or what is happening that's beautiful around you while you are stuck in traffic. Because we often think like those are just empty throwaway moments when in fact they can be the punctuation in our stories that create the most beautiful spaces and gaps where we can learn and grow. And um, I love, again, the quote that you opened this chapter with, everyone you meet has a divine gift for you. Your job is to discover what that gift is. And rephrasing, reframing people as a gift as they're bringing you something, I think is such a beautiful way to be intentional about the way you live. And I, and I wonder if you could kind of like connect some of these themes to that idea of there are no throwaway moments. Being the stiff guy in the yoga class, you know, being the kid who shows up and says, I want to, I want to live in a big city and experience that. Like how, how has that kind of shaped who you are today? That idea of, of trying to prioritize every moment as deeply meaningful, spiritual even. You know, um, one of my favorite quotes that's not in the book, was from the, the, the book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. 
uh, who is, which is written by Robert Persig. And he said, um, he said, you can't be sloppy six days out of the week and expect to be perfect on the seventh day. If you want to, he was talking, he was referring to um, maintaining a motorcycle. If you want to, if you want to do good work on the seventh day, you have to do good work on those other six days. And then you don't even have to try to do good work because you condition yourself. So you just work naturally <laughs> and it'll just be, it'll just be exceptional work. So I, I ever since reading that years and years and years ago, I, I really became a, a big proponent of this idea that everything, the way you do anything is the way you do everything and every moment counts for something. And, you know, the more life experience you get, the more you start to see how things come into play later on in life. It's kind of like in screenwriting. If you watch any movie, especially like crime, dramas, and thrillers, and they do that sort of pan shot in the opening scenes of the movie where the main character is like a stunt car driver, and he's driving this car that he's never driven before, and it does this really weird thing, and he doesn't know how to work it, and, and then he finally gets it to jump the ramp, and da, da 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 And then it just seems like this kind of throwaway scene, this moment that doesn't really, doesn't really connect with anything. And sure enough, in the third act of that movie, when they're escaping the bad guy, they're going to have to get in that car and jump that ramp or something similar. Because that's what you learn in screenwriting is that the thing that you show in the first 10 minutes, you're going to use in the last act of the, of the movie. And the audience is going to buy it because they've already seen it. So in other words, if you're watching Jaws and Chef Brody pulls out a lightsaber from Star Wars at the end to kill the shark, and you've never seen the lightsaber show up at any point in that movie, you're going to lose the audience. They're going to be like, Where, well, hold on. This is defying the logic of this Jaws universe. So you have to show it, and then it makes sense later on. And all that to say, if you're working in um, you know, a toll booth, because that's whatever you know, circumstances led you to have to get this job, and you want to be a choreographer, right? And now you're in this confined space for hours on end. A lot of times we may look at that as, oh, you know, this is holding me back. But who's to say 10 years from that point, you're going to get tapped to choreograph some dance in a confined space? You know, that the, the plot is the dancers in a confined space, but they need to move and express. And who better to do that than someone who knows intimately what it's like to be in a confined space, right? And that's just kind of how these things work. They work so beautifully like that. And it ends up giving you your unique advantage. So there are no, if you just adopt the attitude that there are no accidents, what that does is it frees you up to become hyper-present. And when you become hyper-present, it's kind of like those magic eye puzzles. Remember those magic eye puzzles that you would look at, that there'd be a, like a wallpaper-like pattern, didn't really make any, any sense, but you just, the instruction is you look at it, 
but you don't focus. You have to actually soften your gaze. And as you soften your gaze, what happens? An object starts to appear from the pattern, from the background. And it's like a whale or it's a pyramid or, you know, something that was not obviously hidden in that background. It's like, oh, wow, I see it. I see it. And then somebody else wants to come and try to see it. And they're focusing. They can't see it. Only the person who's kind of softened their gaze and acclimated to that pattern can see the object come from the background. And when you're hyper present in your life, life is a magic eye puzzle. You start to see stuff that other people don't see. You see opportunities. You see moments of connection. You feel things. You, You sense a degree of serendipity, like I'm supposed to be here, right? You can feel that stuff. And it ends up putting you more often than not in the right place at the right time where you come away with those stories that you you tell people about at the family reunion and on the road trips. And, and again, it always starts with something told me to dot, dot, dot. And it, it, it creates this really beautiful moment that people are like awe-inspired by and they can't get enough. They want to hear it over and over and over. Tell the story, you know, da, 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 da. and it's like you didn't wake up that day trying to have these adventures. It's just that you found yourself in this adventurous spirit because you were hyper present. So the idea of having that fulfilled life is to be anchored in that sense of, of, of hyper presence. And then you don't have to try to find the gold in the moments, the gold will find you. It'll find you wherever you are. You can be in traffic. You could be in the post office. You could be in Walmart. You could be, you know, in line at the grocery store. And you're having these profound experiences that you end up writing poems about and choreographing dances inspired by these moments and and writing stories about and, you know, and having podcast conversations about without even forcing anything. It just becomes a natural part of who and what you you are. I love that. Uh, it brings up a bunch of different thoughts for myself. Uh, one, I was so bad at finding those images in those, uh, those books. Like all my friends would be like, oh my God. And then I'd be like, oh yeah, I see it too, but I never, I never actually, it. I never saw it. <laughs> so that brought back some childhood anxiety from uh, not not ever seeing the the true magic um but i like i like the the magic in everyday moments um you know i've listened a lot to uh, bob proctor in in recent years and and he talks a lot about like our frequency and our programming you know and just changing that dial a little bit on the radio station um kind of opens up the possibility for ourselves so like um just being aware of different frequencies and finding the right, right uh, the right frequency or the right vibration for ourselves, and and I think finding the magic in the moments allow that. Just kind of thinking about this, it took me back to a couple of books that I read at like transformative times for myself, uh, Celestine Prophecy and The Peaceful Warrior. You know, I read those when I was like twenty years old, and and when I read those back to back, like there was magic in every moment. And uh, when I kind of get away from that and get maybe to a more disconnected or numb phase of life, I just kind of re revisit that time in my life of reading those books and seeing magic everywhere and seeing the connections everywhere. And, you know, you could be at a gas station or, or standing in grocery store and um, 
you know, if you have that mindset of no throwaway moments, like even if you are just buying a pack of gum, like there's so much more possibility and curiosity and all these other principles, they all kind of stack together and uh, your life gets to that frequency that Bob Proctor was talking about. And all of a sudden you're just living that way where opportunities and happiness and, and inner peace are just kind of stacked in your favor uh, because mm. we're doing these small things intentionally, you know? So I love how they all stack together and I want to kind of loop back to the beginning, but before we get there, um, I really liked principle seven, the freedom of choicelessness, because I feel like we can do all of these things, all principle one through six, but sometimes things just don't work out and we can hit our head against the wall as many times as we want. Um, but it's not going to change the situation. So, um, I loved your quote here. Um, when you do everything in your power to make it work and it's still not working, the universe is trying to save your ass. And it's just <laughs> like such, it takes some, something hard and puts a light bulb on top of it. And, uh, you know, just reading this myself, I'm grateful for this reminder because uh, sometimes there's a different path. We're supposed to take that right turn and we're just not, our eyes just aren't open to it. So, uh, can you talk a little bit to the freedom of choicelessness and how that can bring so much possibility? Yeah, so I I share an experience. It's not in this book, but it's it's I've written about it before. Um, back when I was teaching yoga in Los Angeles, I lived about ten minutes from the yoga studio. And I had my whole commute time to the minute. So I would leave 15 minutes before I would literally arrive in the room uh, about five or 10 minutes before um, the students would start arriving and the class was going to start at the top of the hour. So one morning I go to my car for the little 10 minute commute, you know, there was never any traffic. And this is in Los Angeles, which is kind of notorious for traffic. But this route, there was never any traffic. So I never had to worry about that. Except this morning, it was bumper to bumper traffic. And so like a good near, uh, Los Angeles driver, I zigzagged down to the other street, thinking that I was going to you know, bypass this traffic and bumper to bumper traffic. So now I'm thinking, OK, these are my only two options to get to this place in an efficient way. I'm just going to be late. I'm going to be late. And I hate it being late. I've got this whole other thing about why I, I, I need to be punctual um, from growing up. But in any case, I'm coming to terms with the fact that I'm going to be late. It looks like I'm not going to be just a few minutes late. I'm going to be like 10, maybe 15 minutes late. So I get to the intersection. There's only one main intersection that would have crossed both of those streets heading to this place. And this is where I imagined there would be some sort of obstruction that would cause this traffic on both of these streets. And I get to that intersection and all of a sudden the traffic just spontaneously clears up. There was no construction. There was no crazy person in the middle of the street. There was no accident. There was the president wasn't in town. There was nothing. There was nothing that I could blame the traffic on. So now I'm just late. I'm even more pissed off because you know, now I'm going to use that lame excuse that you can't really get away with in Los Angeles, which is, oh, there was traffic. It's like, eh, duh, everybody has traffic. <laughs> so you just look irresponsible. Anyway, I park in the parking garage and I race up the stairs and then I 
walk slowly because I'm the yoga teacher. I'm not supposed to be rushed. And, but I'm like 10 or 15 minutes late. My heart is pounding. And the, the room was this glass room. So you could see in the room as you were walking towards it. And everybody in the room was huddled towards the back of the room. And I'm wearing flip-flops and I walk in and I, I feel this crunching on the bottom of my flip-flops. And I look down and there's like a million shards of broken something. I don't know. I look up to the front of the room, the middle section. So there are these, the whole front of the room was full of wall mirrors. And in the middle section, there's a missing wall mirror. It's like nine feet tall, which is like maybe three meters tall by, uh, by one meter wide. And apparently at the top of the hour, that three by one meter wall mirror dislodged spontaneously and came crashing down right where I would have been sitting had I gotten there on time to start the class. So turns out that phantom traffic jam that I was cursing 15 minutes before was actually saving my ass. <laughs> And, you know, and it was, it was, it, you couldn't have had a more obvious reminder that if you're doing everything that you can do and you're still not getting the result that you want, that you, you know, nature's rejection is nature's protection. You're being protected. You're being spared from something that's worse than the thing that you think you want and you're not able to get. So, Having gone through that experience years and years and years ago, I've adopted this sense of, of protection. Like, okay, I'm being protected. And there's a sense of liberation that comes with that. And again, what is liberation? Um, what does it give to me? Presence. It gives me presence. See, we think time is our most valuable asset. That's not correct. You can have all the time in the world, but if you're not present during that time, you're not seeing the magic eye puzzle. If you're present, you're seeing all kinds of stuff that would help you then optimize the time that you have. Even if it's just a little bit of time, you could have a more valuable experience than someone else with a lot of time and no presence. So being able to, to understand that, okay, um, I'm right where I'm supposed to be allows you to, again, be hyper-present, which case time slows down. And you become aware of things that you would not have been aware of otherwise, which could and probably will come into play in some serendipitous, perhaps even adventurous way later on down the line. That's such a that's such a good story and good reminder to be open to what is happening around us. And and you know, we all I, I feel that story like to my core because when I'm running late for something, I'm like the worst version of myself. And so I'm like with, I was like on the edge of my seat being like, oh, like well, I knew exactly what you're saying. And then to, to show up and <laughs> realize that being late was the best possible thing that could have happened to you in that moment is again, it's like that moment of teaching you, reminding you there's more to life than, you know, always just being on time at the place you're supposed to be. Because had you been there, right, nobody would have been glad that you were on time. 
and we're, you know, you're probably sitting in traffic being like, everyone's going to be mad that I'm late. And right. Probably someone's like, Oh, I'm so glad you were late today. Right. As are you. And so just those moments to, to be humbled and to remember that it's not all about our schedule and our, on our timeline. And I love mm-hmm. that idea of the truest value is, is our presence. Um, cause I often will say our time is our, is our most precious resource, but not so if we're not present in it. And point of clarification, I did try my best to get there on time. It wasn't like I was I was trifling and woke up late and you know all of this stuff. That's a whole other conversation. We could talk about that if you want. But. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's funny. I, I alluded to a childhood experience. My mother was always late. She was notoriously late for everything. And so because she was late and she knew that she was late, she, and this is back in the analog clock era. We didn't have digital clocks, but she would make every clock like, it could be anywhere from five minutes fast, 15 minutes fast, 10 minutes. You never knew what time it actually was because she had manipulated all the clocks to be faster and she was still late. So it was just an interesting experience, you know, trying to be somewhere on time, but not knowing if you're going to, because I'm always on time. So I would end up being 15 minutes early. And that's the longest time is when you have to wait a long time for something to start because you got there super early as opposed to just kind of timing it perfectly. That's so funny. We, we did a little prank on a friend like that the other day. He was a voice actor that had an addition and he's like, I forgot my, 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 my phone and my watch. So just like, tell me when I'm like this time so I can make it to the audition on time. And we're like, you need to be there at two forty-five, And it was actually like two 30, but we're like, shit, it's two forty. Like you got to sprint. And he just like, he had his baby with him in a stroller and he just like took off up the hill. And then he got there. He's like, Oh my God, I'm early. Like screw you guys, but I'm so happy you tricked me. My favorite, my favorite prank is if I'm taking someone to the airport and I have to pick them up, I'll, I'll pick them up. I'll go to their house and I'll be sitting there and I'll just, I'll let them like call me cause they're, they don't hear from me. And I answer the phone and I go, hello, <laughs> <laughs> what? the airport. <laughs> and they're like, what aren't you supposed to say? This is back before the Uber days though. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not as relevant now. Ta- Time like, I'm just I'm just screwing with you. I'm outside. Come on down. <laughs> Come on down. <laughs> time, time related pranks. I love it. I love it. Light. Um, I love all of the the principles in the book. I think it's an amazing guide. I think they all stack. You can you can pick up one and kind of see what resonates with you on the day. Um, I feel like which we we kind of skipped around, but I I feel like you know you're you're living an embodied experience of these principles, and we kind of skipped over um how you gave away your possessions and started living from a from a single carry-on bag you're living in mexico city kind of living this this minimalist semi-nomadic lifestyle um when i think about spiritual minimalism um i think about when i'm connected to my experience with source everything else kind of doesn't matter and um it becomes very minimal in that sense. But can you kind of share your current spiritual practice using spiritual spiritual minimalism and how kind of your journey to Mexico City, getting rid of your possessions, kind of led you to this version of yourself today? Sure. So I was living in Venice, California, and um, this is back in 2000. I, I, I was in California for 16 years, so Venice was the last place I was living when I got the intuitive hit, I think it was 2016 slash 17 to start to adopt 
a nomadic lifestyle and to move out of my two bedroom apartment and to move into a carry on bag. So being the pragmatic person that I am, relatively speaking, um, I'd said yes to that internal urge because at that point, I was very conversational in the voice of my heart due to a bunch of other experiences that came before that. And I knew that I had to take it seriously. And it was just a matter of when I was going to do it. And I went to the luggage store with a bunch of my clothes that I had taken on the road with me um, for several trips. And I'd done some research and found out that 22 inches was the largest carry-on bag that they would allow you to check into the overhead compartment of most airlines. So again, I'm thinking about this very methodically. And here's, here's the distinction, right? A lot of times we'll let our head dictate the, um, the leap or which direction we go in in life. The head is not meant to do that. The head is meant to figure out how, what kind of carry-on bag do you need? What's the largest one they'll let you take onto the thing? And you know where do you go to get it? That's what the head is good for. The heart is what tells you to move out of your apartment into a carry-on bag. And I'm not, I'm not saying this is what anyone else has to do, but everyone has their version of that. Whether it's starting the business that you keep dreaming about, whether it's settling down after you've been on the road for you know years, whether it's being on your own for a while, getting out of that abusive situation or that toxic, you know, whatever it is, and just kind of being on your own for a little while and, and, and trusting that you're going to be okay. So that could be your version of this extreme thing, or at least it feels extreme temporarily of me moving out of an apartment and into a carry-on bag. So, so I go to the thing and I find a, a carry-on that I've, I'm going to now make my new apartment and I put a bunch of stuff in there and I move out on May 31st, 2018. And, um, and I start basically traveling light, like literally. <laughs> and it took me about six months to realize that I had way too much stuff. And so I downsized to a backpack. I had a 40 liter Patagonia backpack. Um, which after about six more months made me realize I still have too much stuff. And, I, and I, it occurred to me, I was asking the wrong question. I was asking how much stuff can I fit into this carry-on bag just in case, which is what we do with our house. You know, I should get this, this grill just in case I ever want to cook out for the holiday, or I should get this type of vacuum cleaner just in case I get a cat one day in the cat sheds and, it's on sale. We're asking the wrong questions. The question we want to ask is, is this thing, is this thing adding value to my life in the real time? And if so, do I really love it? You know, and if I have something else that's kind of like it, do I love it more than that other thing that I have? And if I do, then I get this and I I replace it. I gift that other thing away. And if I don't, then I don't get it. I don't get it. 
and or I make an agreement with myself for everything that I give, I, I acquire, I give away two things. If I want to downsize, that is. If you don't care about downsizing, ignore this part of the conversation. But, you know, it's interesting what can happen when you start asking different questions around why you acquire the things that you acquire. So when I got down to my little day pack, um, in that process, I had to learn some things. I had to learn like how to hand wash my clothes, which created a lot of space in my bag. And, you know, you have to learn how to do more with less. And so that became the question like, okay, um, these pair of shoes I have, right? These white Stan Smith Adidas. Why do I have those shoes and not some other pair of shoes? Well, with the white Stan Smith Adidas, a, they have a wide toe box, so they're comfortable, more comfortable to walk in than most other sneakers. B, they're leather, so they're easier to clean. If I wipe them down and put a fresh pair of white shoestrings in them, they look almost brand new. C, everybody sells them all over the world, so they're easy to replace whenever I need to. D, you can dress them up or you can dress them down. So it's like I take, I go through this little iteration with everything that I have, and it may seem, again, excessive to some people, but that's just a temporary thing that I'm evaluating for myself. And then after that, I don't have to think about it anymore. I'm not walking past a shoe store going, should I walk in there? It, no, I don't have any room for any more shoes. So, and, I, and, and I've already worked the math with the ones that I've had and I've tested it and all these different areas. So I've worked out, I've gone for hikes, I've gone on dates, I've gone on, I've given keynote talks, I've been up in hot air balloons, you know, I've done everything imaginable, weddings, funerals with my white Stan Smith <laughs> Adidas. And, um, and so that's the standard now is how can I, how, what items can I use that help me to do more with less? Again, you have an aversion of that. It may not be about one pair of shoe or anything like that, but how do I, how do I, cause this is the, this is the, the, you, the reason, the excuse that we use to let ourselves off the hook. I don't have everything I need to start up my juice company. I don't have everything I need to write my book. I need an agent. I need, no, you don't know. What can you do with what you have right now? And when you start asking that question, the magic eye puzzle, stuff starts to appear. <laughs> Connections, hidden opportunities, relationships. And people want to help you because you're present, because you're engaged, because you're not treating life like they're throwaway moments, because you're giving what you want to receive, because you're you're the one person that's comfortable in this very uncomfortable circumstance. And that's attractive. It draws the same kinds of people to you who can help you, who can connect you to other opportunities. And that's all a part of the magic eye puzzle. So your job, again, is to not figure out how it's going to happen. It's just to keep taking the next step along the path, whichever step feels most aligned and not let yourself off the hook. The reason you have the desire in the first place is not because the universe um, knows that you know how it's all going to work out. The thing the universe knows about you is that you're capable. You're capable of putting yourself in proximity to the circumstances, the things and the people that are ultimately gonna come into play in order for you to step into that greater service opportunity that is your path and your purpose. Mm. Man, 
That's so good. Like, thank you. I think it's such a, it's such a important reminder for modern people in this world that we've created with, you know, same day shipping over Amazon and, you know, built in ads on the social media that we use that tells us, you know, the things that we need to be the better version of ourselves and, and to hear you reminding us, uh, that we have probably everything we need and more just within us and that to live a fulfilled life might actually mean simplifying and stripping all the things away rather than adding to. And I know that, you know, talking about inner voice and inner guide, like intuitively, I'm just like, everything within me is like, yes, that is the way. Because when life feels full and cluttered of things and stuff, it doesn't actually bring joy or happiness. It, it often is the opposite. You know, the more tech we have, the more problems we create. And then we have to create new things to solve those problems, which creates new problems. And it's like, wait, 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 at what point can we say it's not the worst thing in the world to go back, to go back to a more simple lifestyle, a more simple way and, and experience like the joys that we had when, when we were just kids walking aimlessly to a mall with a quarter in our pocket or riding our bikes around the neighborhood because that's the, all we needed to do to, to truly enjoy life and experience moments and be fully present. And I think that it is in many ways a beautiful rebellion against the culture of want and need and capitalism that dominates so much of our day-to-day lives. And uh, it's, it's so refreshing and it's so needed. And I'm so grateful that you are telling that story, telling your story and inviting other people in their own way to consider what might minimalism, but also spiritual minimalism look like to adopt into our own lives, starting with five minutes with our eyes closed, paying attention to ourselves and our breath. It's just, it's amazing. It's such a simple way to unlock uh, incredible power, I think, within us. So thank you. Thank you, man. That was awesome. I I really enjoyed this, this conversation. I definitely told stuff I haven't talked about ever before publicly. So (laughs) I'm sure you guys get that a lot though. You're so good at your, uh, your questions and your research and all of that. Well, thank you. It means a lot coming from someone who, who, uh, is, is in the craft as well. So we appreciate it. But, uh, if, if you'll afford us the time, we do have one closing question that we like to ask every one of our guests. Um, so Zach and I, um, we similar to you during the, during the pandemic, we're like, well, we got this gift of time, which is unusual. Let's start this podcast and see what happens. And uh, as we were running along one day, we're like, is it going to be the juice truck podcast, like attached to the juice truck business? Or, we, you know, we didn't really know where it was going to go. And then one day on a run, Zach was like, I think I got the name a little more good. And I was like, oh, man, it was just like intuitively, I just knew, yes, that's it. Because that's kind of what we want to do and create and foster in the world. But we love to hear from our guests, like, what does that name, that phrase mean for you? A little more good. Mm, a little more good. Wow. I think that's the embodiment of, of everything we've been talking about, you know, especially the no throwaway moments and treating treating life as though it's happening for you and not to you, no matter where you are, no matter what you're experiencing. And when in doubt, find a way to give something back, you know, whether it's a smile, whether it's a compliment. That's one of my favorite things in the world to do is to just drop right in to the moment with whoever I'm around. And especially 
if I was internally judging the person or criticizing the person, I try to drop in and go, okay, well, what's something that they're doing right? What's something that, that I appreciate about this person or about this moment? And I'll, I call it flipping the frustration into something that's a little bit, that's a lot more positive than just, you know, even just internally voicing this criticism to myself. And it's amazing how much it can shift your energy. And again, it lights you up. It, it when you voice it, it in, increases the, the power of the connection between you and that other person. And it makes them more present. Like they're, they're there just hanging on to every word It breaks. It snaps them out of their kind of routine and it snaps you out. And it's just, you know, and that's where the possibilities live. And that's, that's, that's the good stuff. So, yeah, that's what I think of when I think of a little more good. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Light. Um, so grateful for your presence today. Uh, so grateful for the work that you do. So excited for your new book, Travel Light, Spiritual Minimalism to Live a More Fulfilled Life. Uh, I'm sure uh, we'll, we'll share all of the, the launch details in, in the show notes and the intro outro um, so people can find this book uh, wherever they might be. But yeah, just wanted to express uh, extreme gratitude for the work that you do, your podcast, your books, your teachings. Uh, I think it, it fosters and creates space for the world that uh, that we hope for. Uh, I think you're embodying it and giving space for more to to live life in, in this in this spiritual minimalistic way that uh, we're hoping for. So thank you, thank you, Light. Thank you, guys. That was that was truly an exceptional job, and uh, I'm inspired. <laughs> I'm a little envious that you have, there's two of you. That's great. You know, you get to kind of like bounce off each other and it's, it's, it's it was a really uh, good experience for me as a guest. So thank you. Thank you very much for, for holding that space and, uh, and for all the work, I know what, how much work it takes, you know, to get to where we all are. So I appreciate that too, the waking up every day and just taking that next step. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much. Like, Well, there you have it. Travel light with Light Watkins, the uh, main man behind spiritual minimalism and really like all kinds of minimalism. But the, this new evolution of it is uh, is truly, truly inspirational. It makes me want to just kind of get rid of all of the excess internal and external stuff in my life. You know, kind of take those those moments of inventory um, and get clear on what matters most. What do I really need to be fulfilled and satisfied? And, you know, uh, Light Watkins helps by blazing a path for us. Yeah. There we go. I'm going to clean out my uh, spiritual backpack and try to lighten the baggage that I carry with myself <laughs> everywhere. So grateful, grateful, grateful to Light. Um, it's, he's, you know, he embodies the name that he carries. And, uh, you know, I think his work is, is one that can bring, you know, grounding and connection to, to all of us. So tune in to check out lightwalkins.com. Grateful for all of you making it this far into the podcast. Grateful for Light for this conversation. And we look forward to seeing you all same place, same spot next week. That's right. Until next time, stay good. Peace.